This is Iron Sports. We're talking to John Shea, author of 24, and it's a book, John, you wrote with Willie Mays. So it was, it's, a, it's an autobiography, sort of. Would you, would you say it's an autobiography? Yeah, his memoirs. Uh, I mean, it could be a lot of things. It could be a biography, a children's book, an inspirational book. Uh, uh, he mentioned that when we first started talking about it, he'd like to see it in classrooms. But really, it's for a baseball book, a sports book, uh, a book on history. So it's, it kind of runs the gamut, but it's, it, it, maybe we start with uh, his memoirs. What I liked about this book and how you presented it, and it's difficult because you're doing the writing, but you wanted to have his words, and it was so it was sort of a not from his perspective. But you 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 wrote and wrote about it, and whenever he had something to add, it's like on every couple pages, you would put in bold print his comments or his recollections, which I, I liked in that. And I also like the fact you just didn't go chronological order. You covered so many different topics, but you didn't feel like when you know, someone has a 24-year career, you weren't going to go year one, year two, year three. So I just liked how you jumped around and just covered the big issues with him and didn't try to do this just, you, I mean, to do a 24-year history of him and, and his post-baseball would have been like volume after volumes. Sure. No, thank you. Uh, you know, straight biographies or sometimes autobiographies are a chronology, and I, I was born in Westfield, Alabama. I played with Birmingham Black Barons. I got signed by the Giants. I broke in in 51. I made the catch in 54. I went to the Mets in 73, and then uh, on and on and on. But you know what? This this is – I didn't want to recount games and stats and play-by-play. We all know that. And, sure, there are some – recollections of the catch and the four home run game in milwaukee and the home run off spawn in the 16th inning at candlestick park that gave marichelle a one nothing victory and dragging johnny roseboro off the field uh, in a sea of dodger blue after marichelle clubbed him with the bat so we go back and detail the obvious but with new and different twists from all these people who've lived in a, a, a life and can look back at this like it was yesterday, have total recall, and are always happy to, to spin some Willie May stories. And so, that, yeah, I, th- I think um, the format, like you said, the bold-faced uh, Willie quotes, I think um, really sets this apart. I, I've never seen a book like it. So, you know, we took a lot of chances, and we tried to, I guess, write new history because none of this, stuff in this book has ever been used elsewhere. In other words, if Willie or anybody else said anything, those quotes were off limits for this book. So it's all fresh and exclusive new material. We just had John Pessa on the show talking about Yogi Bear, and I think one of the similarities I saw between Mays and Bear is when they were younger, just the love of playing, love of playing sports. Now, certainly Bear was completely different in terms of what people viewed him and they viewed uh, as Willie, but I just the, the idea is that they were so focused on on playing their sports and they enjoyed it and that passion came through. And, and you mentioned in the book how if, in maybe a different era, he would be a, a star basketball player or a quarterback, or a, a football quarterback, that, that baseball was really his third best sport. Yeah, isn't that funny? Uh, back in Fairfield, Alabama, when he was in high school, you know, his high school didn't even have a baseball team. He was a quarterback <laughs> on the football team and the, the the shooting guard on the basketball team. But for whatever reason, they didn't have baseball. But the kids did play baseball regionally against other regions, other areas. So uh, he's pretty much the equivalent of a, maybe a YMCA or a boys club or something like that. 
so that they could get their baseball fill. Now, Willie did that, but he also played at the same time during his high school years in the Negro Leagues with the Birmingham Black Barons. So he was always a step above the kids his age. I mean, he was playing center field with grown men in their 20s and early 30s, all these wonderful professional ballplayers, many of whom could have or should have played in the big leagues, but because of the color of their skin, they were unable to. But yeah, you're right. He always had that youthful exuberance and joy for the game uh, that made him just a must-see, not just at the plate, but in center field, because you never knew what was going to happen next. He told me in the book he tried to make the hard plays look easy and the easy plays look hard. And of course, the basket catch that nobody ever saw before and he mastered. He said he only dropped two in his whole life and people tried to imitate it and got hit in the head and he wouldn't recommend it. But but he, yeah, he was he was a different breed, a different bird, and that's that's what made him so special. It was not just his baseball ability, which was through the roof with the five tools, but it was the sixth tool, the mental game. And it was the durability, playing every game, and the longevity, and uh, the entertainment value. I mean, he had it all. There was nobody as complete as Willie Mays. And then in terms of his initial, when he was playing in Alabama and the Black Leagues, I mean, he played at the Rickford, Rickwood, Rickwood Stadium. And I was there. I went to Birmingham and I went to the stadium. And, and what a famous stadium. I mean, they filmed the movie Cobb there. Bull Durham was filmed there. And it's the oldest stadium in baseball. But I think the, the, what you, and you spell it on the book, in 1947, his father, who was a great baseball player in his own right, uh, said, Jackie Robinson just was signed by the Dodgers. This is your chance. So he came up, he was, you know, he was born at the right time in terms of, you know, he, there were all these great players that played in the black leagues in terms of Josh Gibson, who didn't really have a chance, or Satchel Page, who came in later. But it, right when Willie was coming into, you know, being playing 20 years old, he's going to have this chance to play in the major leagues. And that was a, you know, just a gr- so fortunate to have Hank Aaron and Willie Mays come in at that same time. Yeah, and there's a whole Hank and Willie chapter, and I think that could have been an entire book. I mean, I, I, I've never seen it written elsewhere, Willie on Hank and Hank on Willie all these years later. And both of them really opened up about each other and spoke about their mutual respect. I mean, they're only three years apart, Willie coming up in 51 and Hank coming up in 54, and they were on so many all-star teams together. They barnstormed together um, you know, they did autograph shows after their careers were over, and they all, they had the same the same path. You know, born in the same state, one one from Mobile, one from Birmingham, uh, and obviously they're the only living Hall of Famers who played in the Negro Leagues. But just two special people for a lot of reasons: American heroes and baseball heroes and sports heroes and so well-respected, and it was just an honor, my goodness, to talk to Hank all these years later about his career and his association with Willie, and I asked him a lot about the so-called rivalry and Willie as well. And, you know, obviously, yeah, it could have been a rivalry. Uh, They might have looked into the box scores to see what the other guy is doing. They were both chasing Babe Ruth, the home run record, but I think more important than that was just the fact that these were two special people who overcame so much in their youth 
to strive for a better game, a better world, and, you know, the proof in the pudding. I mean, they, looking back at their careers and lives, I mean, exemplary lives, and through their foundation, they're still helping kids, underprivileged kids, and, and both of them were exactly that. And it, it, it just never stops. But, yeah, Rickwood Field, back in, back in Birmingham, 1910, it's just a beautiful, yeah, you saw it, I saw it. We'd recommend it to, to anybody. I'm sure you feel the same way. Oldest uh, professional ballpark in the country, and you walk in, and you're just walking into history. It's a beautiful little park. I mean, all the greats played there, white and black, because white folks and black folks barnstormed in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and everyone seemed to stop uh, through Birmingham. And uh, Willie, of course, born in the area, and played there in 48, 49, 50. 1948, he was a center fielder on the team that went all the way to the Negro League World Series, and that was the final Negro League World Series uh, because interest in the leagues were waning. Jackie was in Brooklyn, and the focus was on these you know, great ballplayers who were making their mark in, in, in what was known as white baseball. Right. I mean, and you have an interesting chapter about what-ifs. And you said that, you know, why did Willie Mays end up with the Giants? And the, the fact is, it is more likely he would have gone to the Red Sox. And you could have had Willie Mays and Ted Williams in the same team. Um, but the Red Sox were not signing African-American players at that time. And you, and you mentioned how the American League was hesitant to do that, whereas more of the National League. And then you, cause you said, well, the Yankees could have signed him also, but they didn't. Yankees didn't sign an African-American until Elston Howard. And then you're like the question, well, the Dodgers, they already had Jackie Robinson, right? Campanella. They didn't go after him. So it was very interesting that he ended up with the Giants and remember that this is the New York Giants not the San Francisco Giants at that time but uh but that was I mean gosh you look at the what ifs I mean what if he did go end up going the Red Sox and, and playing with Ted Williams yeah Willie and Ted on the same team and more than any other team that scouted him and we went down the list there were two Boston teams the Braves and the Red Sox the Braves eventually moving to Milwaukee and then Atlanta uh the Dodgers from Brooklyn the Yankees and even the White Sox were involved. And more than any other team, Mays tells me that it was the Red Sox who were in on him the most. And why not? Because the Red Sox actually had a minor league team, a white minor league team, playing at Rickwood on weekends that the Black Barons were out of town. And when the Black Barons came in to play, uh, the White Barons uh, went out of town to play their road games. So um, the Red Sox knew everything about Mays. But obviously, uh, the ownership and the management were, were, were not fond of any men of color playing for those cherished Red Sox. And what did that lead to? Well, it led to a lot of mediocrity on the ball field for many, many years to come. The, the, it's just uh, awful. And not until Pumpsy Green in 1959 did the Red Sox actually bring in an African-American ball player. And that was 12 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. So they were way behind, and most American League teams, including the Yankees, were way behind. But imagine Mays and Mantle on the same team, or, or Mays and Aaron on the same team, or, or I said the White Sox, maybe Mays and Ernie Banks in the same town. So all those, all those dreams shattered uh, because management and ownerships uh, just were not ready uh, to integrate or in those years, they actually had either two or four. They had quotas per team so they could room together. And when Willie Mays got called up, 
Well, there were already four with the New York Giants in 51. So Artie Wilson came off the roster, and that was Willie's old teammate with the Black Barons. So they sent him down to bring Willie up so they could have four African-American players. And imagine that. It's just crazy to think back all these years later. Right, and and even though Jackie had years ago, the I guess four years before that, it broke the color barrier, but, um, you know, Willie, when he was playing at Trenton, experienced... Anyway, you know, they had to stay at segregated hotels. And you talked about how the team embraced him. Like, if he was had to stay in another hotel, the team would all just crowd into his room at whatever hotel he was in and how popular he was. And even when the fans were, were booing him and by at Hagerstown, you mentioned about Hagerstown, how they ended up loving him, and they went to Minneapolis. And it was like you saw it even in the minor leagues that one year. And, and you mentioned how he, he felt like the, the minor leagues were easier than when he was playing in the black leagues in terms of playing. He said that competition was as much less. But it was like he, he un, you know, even though Jackie was the one who was the first, Willie still had to, he had a lot of discrimination against him, but he was able to, again, both just like Jackie, in order to battle through it. He told me, I didn't know if it was worth it. And what he meant was in 1950, when he graduated from high school, he went from the Black Barons to an all-white league and a minor league affiliate of the Giants in Trenton. And he got abused so much. And like you said, three years after Jackie broke in, hearing a lot of the same stuff, that he told me he wondered if it was worth it. And imagine that if there was no Willie Mays, if he found then at that young age that it wasn't worth it. And he turned away and went back to Birmingham, worked in the mills like his dad did, or, or had odd jobs, or went back to the Black Barons, which, you know, a team that didn't last forever. Um, luckily, it was worth it. And, you know, he, he proved all the bigots wrong. He beat the bigots. He moved on and made a life for himself and, you know, turned everything into a better place, every ballpark he played in, every town he lived in. And I just it, it, it just gave me chills when he said that because it, it, was, it was so bad in Trenton. Not in Trenton, but, but on the road when the Trenton Giants uh, made trips, especially down there in Hagerstown. And... Um, it, it, it was rough on him, but uh, even with the New York Giants, a year later when he broke in, there were towns that he could not stay with his white teammates. He could not eat with his white teammates. And uh, so th- this was the beginning of, uh, of integration. This was only four years after Jackie broke in that Willie broke in with the Giants. And it, it's just amazing sitting with the man for so much time, and it was more than 100 hours we figured together for this project. And it, I just felt so lucky and so fortunate, so privileged to hear the man, talk to the man, and chronicle what the man has to say uh, about his life, about his career, about America. And uh, it's just an opportunity that, that uh, you know, I pinch myself about because it's, it, it's, uh, it's amazing that I was able to do this. And also amazing I was able to share these stories of Willie and the 200-plus people I interviewed um, who complimented Willie's stories, supplemented Willie's stories, and within these 24 chapters, all of that is presented in hopefully a, a way that readers would enjoy it. We're talking to John Shea, author of With Willie Mays of 24. Um, I did like when you talked about 
1951, his rookie year. I mean, he seemed like the Forrest Gump almost. And the fact that he not only did he win rookie of the year, so he's a great player, but he was on deck when Bobby Thompson hit the famous home run, uh, one of the most famous home runs in the history of, of baseball. And he was like nervous. He was glad that Thompson hit it because he didn't want to be up, as you said in the book. And then in the World Series, he's the one who hit the ball. And I don't didn't remember that, but he's the one who hit the ball where Mantle uh, blew out his knee when he tried to crash into DiMaggio and it was Mays who hit that ball. So it was like, even though that was, I guess that was, you know, it was even in his rookie year, he was part of some historic moments. Yeah. And who, who would have thunk it? I mean, uh, Hank, uh, I mean, uh, Mickey and Willie came, came up together in 51. Um, and they kind of paralleled each other throughout, uh, both five tool geniuses, right. Um, who played center field, who played in New York, who, who were the three hitters on their on their teams across the river from each other, and uh, yeah, that '51 series, Mickey is a rookie, Willie is a rookie, and the great DiMaggio is out in center field in his last hurrah, his final uh, World Series, the final season of his Jarrett's career, and and uh, Mantle is out in right because um, you know the following year he would take over for for Joe D, but. But not until uh, Joe D leaves does he take over center field. So Mays hits the seemingly routine pop-up out to right center. <laughs> and Casey Stengel, uh, as Willie explains in the book, tells tells Mantle to go for everything because Joe D had a little leg problem that slowed him. So when you tell Mantle to go for everything, then he's going all out on this fly ball to right center. But Joe calls him off. And obviously, you have to d- d- defer to, to DiMaggio. And uh, so, so Mickey went from 100 miles an hour to zero miles an hour. He, he slips on this drain cover, blows out the knees. Never the same, but he has a great career. Imagine, like you said, what if uh, he was healthy? Because Mays, to this day, says Mantle, even after the injury, was one of the two fastest players he's ever seen, him and Veda Pinson. So anyway, yeah, the the ball maze hit is the one that DiMaggio called and the one that Mickey got hurt on. And imagine that, the three great center fielders uh, connect on this one single play in the 51 World Series, and, and Mays is the guy who hit the ball. Yeah, and of course, I remember I bought the picture of the Vic Wirtz uh, catch when the basket catch of the 54 World Series, when they were able to beat the Indians for the, the title. First, it was the MVP that year. They won the title. But I loved if you would tell the story about the the, the glove. <laughs> I mean, that was amazing. So here's one of the most, the most famous catches in the history of baseball, if not probably the most. And 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 how that glove, like what he, you know, it just shows you how, how Willie was just not into mementos and other things. And he was just giving balls away and giving things away. And just tell the story about what happened to the glove for the most famous catch in the history of baseball. Yeah, so the World Series is over and then they play, you know, they come back the following year and Mace still has the glove and it's not like, now where the hall of fame would be all over that glove or people would try to bid for that glove look at a game worn willie jersey or here's the ball that willie had i mean there was none of that stuff and and uh willie gave away a lot of stuff especially to kids and uh don little threw the ball little left-hander um that words hit a mile and mays makes the catch with the glove and as we know they sweep the World Series. That was kind of the the basis of the momentum because the game was tied 2-2 two to two in the eighth inning. 
and a couple guys on, and if Wirtz got that ball past Mays, two runs easily are going to score, and it's four to two, and who knows what would have happened. But as it turned out, uh, the Giants won in the tenth and swept the mighty Cleveland Indians. So, so the following summer, uh, you know, Mays is the team. I think is traveling from St. Louis uh, um, back to New York or actually from New York to, to, to St. Louis. And uh, Don Little is on the plane, but so is his son, his son named Craig. And Craig wants to play Little League the following year, and Willie overhears that. So the next day in the clubhouse in St. Louis, Willie actually gives the kid his glove. <laughs> and it's actually the glove he made the catch on in, in the World Series. And, you know, Greg, Craig uh, used the glove and... and Little League, he threw it in his bedroom, he left it out in the rain, all the things that kids do with gloves, right? And then not only till you know, later in life, in his 20s maybe, did he realize, you know what? You know, that's Willie Mays' glove. And while I always, uh, you know, cherished the, the glove and, and, and kept it, and, and now I have it in a safe place in the closet and all that, he said, you know what, it's got to go somewhere else. It's got to go to the Hall of Fame. So the Hall of Fame didn't really believe that this was the glove that Mays made the catch with. So so only until um, Mays actually said, yeah, I gave the glove to the Little family, did the Hall of Fame say, oh, okay, so now it's legit. Now we can carry it in uh, in, in, in Cooperstown. So so it, it's funny. And then I, I spoke with uh, Terry Little, who's who was Don Little's um, – daughter-in-law and was married to Craig, eventually married Craig, but she has all this information. Don had passed and Craig has passed, but Terry gave me all this wonderful information because Craig had left her uh, a, a bunch of stuff and details about the story just in case anybody had asked, like me, all these years later for the sake of a Willie Mays book. <laughs> so it's, it's a wonderful uh, detailed uh, explanation of how that glove went from uh, making the words catch to the Hall of Fame so that everyone in the world who visits can see it. And thankfully for the Craig family, they didn't sell it, and they have no intention to sell it because they want everyone to see it because Terry says that was Craig's wish. Well, you know, it's a shame. I mean, so much in baseball, we talked to, we're just talking about Sosa McGuire last week, um, is about numbers. And the 660, when I was growing up, I mean, that was the number of Willie Mays' home run. But when you when you realize that he lost two years to the war after, so he won the Rookie, rookie of the Year 51, and second and third year, he's he's serving in the military. Now, he didn't tr- actually go to Korea, but he, he served in the military and couldn't play in 52, 53, but then came back in 54 and then won the, won the title and, and was the MVP of the league. So, man, if he would have had those you know other 80 home runs, perhaps he's the one who would have broken uh, Roos' record instead of Aaron. And that, that was a shame in terms of when you look at his total numbers for someone who played for 24, 24 years. And you mentioned in the book, though, that he played like today players take the off days they you know the whole load management thing i mean you had 13 straight years he played 150 games he played it in, in, in from 51 to 62 in 99% of every game i mean really you're talking about a player who not only to go to the disabled list but just decided to play every single game and he didn't go to the disabled list until his final season his his uh, 22nd season in the big leagues when he was uh, 42 years old and, you know, by then, uh, you know, most people are five or ten years retired, and he's still playing the game. And 
yeah, it, people talk about Candlestick Park. Well, maybe that robbed him of home runs with that wind that would just knock down any fly ball to left field. But he didn't complain. He adjusted, and he learned how to go to all fields and hit home runs out there. So anyway, I think a bigger deal than Candlestick, as like you said, was the military those two years. And yes, he was Rookie of the Year in 51 and MVP in 54. And in between, he really had nothing because he missed all of 53 and most of 52. So he comes out of the Army, and his first two years with the Giants hits 92 home runs. So just imagine if he hit just maybe 60, conservatively conservatively speaking, and you add 60 to his total of 660, and that's 720, and the Babe had 714. So maybe it would have been Willie who passed the Babe instead of Hank. Um but but again, you know, Willie didn't complain about it. He doesn't complain about it. He adjusted. And any time I ask him about that for the sake of the book or or just uh, just talking, <laughs> he always says, John, what's wrong with 660? And I said, yeah, you're right, Willie. What is wrong with 660? Nothing. Well, and also, and you and you mentioned in the book, I mean, here's someone and you and he is throughout the book. He prided himself on his defense, and I think that's when people are looking at who's the greatest baseball player of all time is. I mean, it comes across that he is the greatest defensive player of all time, and he's arguably the greatest offensive player of all time. So, I mean, it's, it's very much like Jordan. You know, when Mike, we look at Michael Jordan and they say compared to LeBron, they're like, well, LeBron, whatever. But defensively, Jordan is unparalleled. And, and I think you mentioned in the book how he, Willie Mays wants to be known as a defensive player more than he wants to be known as an offensive player. Well, I mean, let me ask you a question. What do you think Willie's best tool was? Like with Jordan, could you say what's better, his offense or defense? With, with Willie, would you say his hitting is better than his fielding, which is better than his slugging, which is better than his throwing, which is better than his running? I mean, I don't know. Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> no. And I think you really spell yeah. it in the book that he was great, that you said he he's not just a five-tool player, he's a six-tool player, because he also had the mental yeah, side sure. of the game. So that's what made him, and that's what that's where he would go down as the greatest player of all time, the fact that he was able to do everything. at, at There was a level where it's hard to say someone could do it better than he could at all those tools. Yeah, and when, when I asked him, I said, okay, so we, we, we haven't figured out which is a better tool, because they're all good. I said, what tool are you most proud of? I mean, here's a man with 660 home runs, 300 lifetime batting average, 3,000 hits. I mean, just you can go on and on. He's the only man in history who homered in every inning, one through 16. Um, you can just, I mean, the, the stats are just uh, through the roof. And I said, what, what, uh, what tool are you most proud of? And he said, defense. And I said, whoa. He said, defense you can control every day. Defense is going to win you games. You can't count on offense. You could hit the ball as hard as you can, but it's going to be right at the guy. Defense, you can contribute um, with a play, a throw, uh, something that you can tip off a teammate on, whatever it is. And he took more pride in his defense, and imagine that, than all the things he did on offense. So it it just says a lot about the guy, which is kind of a team-oriented thing. I mean, Numbers is what get you paid. Numbers is what set you apart. I mean, all these DHs are in the Hall of Fame now. It doesn't matter that they never played defense. <laughs> right. But Willie, it's like that's that's all that mattered to him. The, the, the hitting was a bonus. And uh, and and you're right. The sixth tool he's he's also proud of, and that's the mental side of the game, the thinking, the imagining, the envisioning, the 
the um, playing out the game before it happens, anticipating the play before it happens, letting teammates know what's what to expect before it happens. And you know, he had this pregame meetings with uh, Gaylord Perry and Juan Marichal before their start. They called them the three-minute meetings, in which what's working in the bullpen. Okay, here's how I'm going to play him. Here's how you want to pitch him. And then Marichal and Perry did so because they knew that Mays is really the captain of the defense, and if you pitch to the defense, you're going to succeed. But more than that, um, you know, Willie Willie just uh, made sure he did things for his team to win. One example is he's on second base, ball hit up the middle, easily going to score Mays, right? Well, he intentionally slows down around third to draw the – throw home knowing he's going to score anyway so the runner behind him can advance to second base now he's in the scoring position so he'd always throw off the defense many times he scored from first base on singles one time he scored from first base on a willie mccovey bunt <laughs> and it just goes to show you if he if the defense is going to be lazy with the throw he's going to take the extra base if the defense is out of position he's going to take the extra base and that bunt play Obviously, with McCovey, it's a lot of these guys now. They always had the shift on. Big, powerful, left-handed hitter. And he bunted down the third baseline against Philly and went all the way into left field, base scores standing up. Just incredible stuff. Well, and you know what's interesting about this book? Now, I, he won one title, and it's hard in, the, in a team game in baseball. Ted Williams was World Series, won World Series also in terms of winning. But uh, uh, the idea that you know it's, it's different than basketball but from the mvp perspective i couldn't believe in uh, that he only won two mvp awards and and you spent a good chapters telling how if he was viewed in today's world with the analytics they have like mike trout he would have won he could have won 10 or 11 mvp awards i mean it is crazy and you went through the years where he thought he should have won where he wasn't and it's just amazing that he only won two and he, but he was also he was great with the the media so they liked him but then when the hall of fame came up and the media votes on on the on the mvps but when the hall of fame came up, 23 people left him off the ballot for the Hall of Fame, which is, of course, ridiculous. So I, I guess I wonder, you know, what in terms of why do you think he just didn't win more MVP awards when when he was clearly for like two decades the best player in baseball? Yeah, they didn't analyze numbers like they analyze them now. You know, I, I spoke with Bill James and Rob Nyer and Eno Saris and Tom Tango and Bill Arnold and uh Guys, and and these are all people who who crunch the numbers. They're they're writers. They're historians. They're um, you know they're, they're just smart people who know baseball better than most. And each of them spoke so highly of Willie. And a couple of them went back to his numbers during his playing days. And I came away from these conversations thinking, right, he could have won instead of two anywhere between 8 and 11. I mean, we look at war right now, and war, a 10-war season, wins above replacement, is just an outstanding season. That's 10 wins for one player. And it's only been done like 9 or 10 times since 2000 for hitters. Bonds did it three times. Uh, Trout did it three times. And uh, three or four other, other guys did it uh, once apiece. And uh, I'm talking about a 10-war season. Now, Willie Mays, over seven years in the 60s, averaged 10 war seasons. And every single year, like Bill James told me in the book, he said, Willie Mays' best season is every year. Just pick one. They're all great. 
And that's what that's you know, you know you, you see so many players of today who have great seasons and may, might not back that up the next year, or it might be a career year. You think, okay, this is going to happen. Every, well, it does. But with Mays, it always did. He always had ten WAR seasons. He always had forty, fifty home runs. He always had a hundred RBIs. He always hit three hundred. He always stole base at a high clip. Um, he made the plays defensively, and he, you know he went a long way. He kept guys from advancing. He did everything that an overall player does, which would get the WAR through the roof. Of course, there was no WAR. Uh, there was, you know, there was no stat called WAR back in Willie's time, so we can only look back and say what if. But like one example is 1962. The uh, uh, Mays leads the Giants to the pennant. He he puts just incredible numbers up in September, including in the final weeks. Um, the Giants and Dodgers play the best of three playoff to determine who wins the pennant because they tied after 162. Mays goes off in that series, a couple home runs the first game. Um, he gets a big hit in the third game, and they, and, they, and they win and move on to the World Series. So he has the best war by far. So who do they give it to? They give it to Maury Will, <laughs> whose Dodgers finished second, whose war was about half of Willie's. And why? Because he stole 104 bags, and it never had been done before. So that, that's, that's the uniqueness of MVP voting. You just never know. It's just, uh, you know, obviously it was a mistake because Maury didn't even get to the playoffs, and Willie did, and Willie had a much better year. But they said, well, he stole 104 bags. And there are a bunch of other examples in which Willie could have or should have won the MVP, but he was always second, he was always third, whatever it was. But you look at his, his, his season versus the guy who won the MVP, and you could say, man, that's a pretty good debate. That's a good argument for Willie that maybe he, he could have won it. But, again, Willie doesn't complain, doesn't gripe. Um, he'll take his two MVPs. I, a great stat. He was both the youngest at the time to ever win an MVP, and he was also the oldest at the time to ever win an MVP. 1954 and 1965, and every year in between he could have won them but didn't. We've been talking to John Shea, author of 24 with Willie Mays. And before I let you go, John, just just give I loved how your book talked about some of these players. They retire and they stop around. You might see him for some old timers games. But Willie Mays in his past and uh, the last 40 years has been just uh, not the old 40, but in the current like the last 20, 25 years has been at every giant game, has been a mentor to the players on the team. And to during the whole with with uh, Barry Bonds was Barry Bonds's mentor and going through everything he was going through because of his relation with Bobby Bonds and I just don't think there's any other player in the game that's been with the you know that the young and you and you interview a lot of these young players like Buster Posey who are like I I look up to him he's always giving us advice and I mean it's just great to have someone Mays be involved in the game every single day and helping but not stepping on the toes of the managers but just being there and being a great mentor. Yeah, and it, it's very unusual for Hall of Famers to be in the clubhouse on a regular basis. Now, in, in terms of the Giants, Willie McCovey was like that. Um, he also had a front office job. You know, he passed a couple of years ago. Uh, but Mays, at 89, is still doing it. In spring training, I was out there, and he was in the home team clubhouse <laughs> every game. You know, before every home game, there he was, um, holding court, 
helping kids, you know, signing balls, doing coaches, whatever. And he just made himself accessible. That's that's what he enjoys doing. And this is kind of a bummer uh, with the pandemic that he hasn't been able to, to get out. Um, he just turned 89 last month. But you're right. He has been at the ballpark so often and is so accessible. And that's the great thing about the book is the access he gave me, um, which I don't think he ever gave anybody else who ever uh, covered him or wrote a book with him or about him. And like I said, it's just been an extreme privilege to spend so much time with him and and to, to be able to write the things I did with him. And he signed off on everything. He never told me what to write or what not to write. Um, but obviously, based on the interviews, he knew the angle we were pursuing. And like I said, when I brought this up to him 15 years ago, he said, I would like to see this book in classrooms. And so throughout there are inspirational themes and a ton of storytelling. And like I said, it, it's all new. And plus the photography is all new. There's almost 100 pictures, and the biggest Willie Mays fan in the world probably wouldn't recognize uh, 95% of the photographs. So, so it's unique in a lot of ways, not just the storytelling and the inspiration, but the art and the photography as well. Well, John, thanks a lot for coming on IRA Sports. I really appreciate it. This book is tremendous. Um, any baseball fan should be reading about him. He is a true inspiration to people, and uh, you really you know, cover his entire career. And just I like the stories and how you presented the book. Everything was perfect. Uh, thanks a lot. For, thank you so much for writing the book. It, was, it gave me a lot of pleasure reading it, and I really enjoyed learning things. So, again, thanks, John, for, for writing the book and for coming on I Run Sports. Well, Ira, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care.